and welcome to Myth in the Mojave, 30 minutes of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist, Catherine Svela. Wherever you may be in this wide, beautiful, crazy world of ours, you are part of this story circle. The title of today's podcast, Witches, Power, Heroes, and Braids, is inspired by a gorgeous book that I recently finished. Uh, It's called Circe by Madeline Miller. It's currently on the New York Times bestseller list, and with good reason. This book is really beautiful and reliable, reworking of bits and pieces of ancient Greek myths to tell the story of Circe. Circe was the immortal daughter of the sun god Helios and a water nymph named Perse, who was the daughter of the titan god of the ocean, Oceanus. And Circe is best known as the sorceress, who was ensconced on the island of Ai, visited by Odysseus on his wandering way home from Troy in Homer's Odyssey. In that story, classical epic, cornerstone of Western culture, Circe is merely one episode. She's one of many powerful females, goddesses, nymphs, monsters, and mortal women that Odysseus meets along the way. And you find her story in Book 10, along with King Aeolus and his bag of winds, and the man-eating Lystragonians. The pages that she appears on are relatively few, and yet she plays a pivotal role in the Odyssey because she helps Odysseus make a required trip down to the underworld. And she's a very memorable figure because she initially turns his men into swine with her herbs and magic words. This image of the sorceress goddess on a magical island who can turn men into pigs has been fodder for artists and the cultural imagination for centuries. Google Circe and you're going to find all kinds of images and stories. And she's typically portrayed as evil or at best amoral in the way of gods, a self-serving female who brews wicked potions to lower her power over all who venture onto her island. The lions and the wolves, for example, are all tame as pets due to her enchantments. And in the Odyssey, the clever hero Odysseus, who is the darling of the goddess Athena, uh, must outwit her, and how he manages the dangers and the delights contained in this sorceress goddess Circe is the story that Homer tells, which makes sense, of course, because the Odyssey is Odysseus's story. Now, Miller plucks these incidents out of the Odyssey as part of her telling of Circe's story. But the Odyssey is one in a handful of Greek myths that mention her. 
She also appears in the myth of Jason and the Argonauts and the quest for the Golden Fleece, for example. And Miller weaves all of these threads together to give us the life story of a secondary goddess. A goddess who occupies a relatively low place in the hierarchy of the Greek immortals. Because she is a titan, first of all, she's one of the first race of gods, the gods who were defeated by Zeus and the Olympians. Because she is a female in a cosmos ruled by men. And because her mother is a nymph, a group of immortal beings largely used by all of the others to satisfy their pleasures. So she's not in the same league as goddesses like Hera or Aphrodite or Athena or Artemis or Demeter. And yet, Circe does acquire power. She becomes a witch. How she does this and why she does this is a central theme in Miller's story. Now, my hopes in creating this podcast are, first of all, to inspire you to read this or listen to the audiobook. And I have to say that the voice of Perdita Weeks, who reads the audiobook, is so sublime and perfect for this story. And I got to pause to say thank you to Brenda Littleton, who gifted me with this book. So if you can listen to it, by all means, please do that. So I'm hoping to inspire you to treat yourself, I think all of us probably need such a treat right now, with this incredible story. And I also want to tell you a little bit about how I see this story, the fact that it's being told right now in the larger cultural conversation. Now, when you read it, you may or may not reflect on these themes. But hey, even if (laughs) your reading doesn't take you in the same places that I went, maybe also my sharing this exploration will uh, encourage you to concoct your own around the things in the story that provoke thought for you. When you take up the quest for new stories, which is my quest as a mythologist, you quickly realize that there is no plot line in human experience that has not already been very well articulated over and over and over again. This is one reason for consciously delving into the cultural storehouse of our old stories. It's really unavoidable. (laughs) All of our new stories, all of the stories that we need for this time are being drawn from the old. They are being reworked. And the more aware of this we are, the more we can appreciate their nuances. And these nuances are powerful and important. They are the bedrock of our culture. Now, this reworking, the revisiting and consciously updating the plots with details of contemporary life and shifting 
the portrayal of various characters to reflect changes in cultural values, that's been going on for a long time. The ancient Greeks called it mythopoesis. Now, in the case of what we call our entertainments, our novels and our films today, this reworking often involves recasting one of the characters, the villain, for example, in a story as the protagonist, even as the hero. So, for example, we had Maleficent a few years back, which was a reworking of the fairy tale figure of the 13th fairy. In Disney's version of Sleeping Beauty, this 13th fairy, and Disney's the one who gave her the name, Maleficent, was just simply evil and cruel. I mean, she was willing to put this terrible curse on an innocent child because her ego was insulted and the prince has to defeat her and he does. But in Maleficent, when she gets her own movie, we get the backstory. And when we get the backstory, we get the story of her wounding and therefore her motivations. And when we get the story of the wounds and the motivations, there's a shift then in the value system that the story is speaking to, creating, and supporting. These kinds of shifts are a really important cultural development. There is a deep connection between our so-called fictions and what is articulated and elevated to a mythic stature, and the telling of untold stories of other people and creatures who live in this material time-bound plane that we call the real world. There is encouragement to tell personal stories, autobiographies, and biographies, and new histories about the lives of people who were previously deemed unimportant and undeserving of record. This includes the stories about women's lives and their accomplishments in character and contributions. It includes the stories of all who are considered to be peripheral to the dominant paradigm, to the main movers and shakers in a culture. When those stories are told, it increases the value of those lives and experiences. And it increases the value of the questions that they pose to us. I locate Miller's Circe here as part of this opening, part of this cultural development. Now, I'm not going to say more about the story itself because I absolutely want you to treat yourself to it. And you don't need to know Greek mythology, by the way. I'm familiar with most of Miller's mythological material, and I thoroughly enjoyed how she wound all of that together to tell this story and to invoke Circe's shadowy presence out of those fragments But Miller's handling of the existing myths is complete enough that you will learn what you don't already know, and then some. So let me share 
some thoughts and questions that I have in response to this book. Thoughts and questions about issues that we often talk about here on Myth in the Mojave because they are so important to our time. These are are images of the heroic and the hero and power. Sources of power and its proper use, who has power, and possible alternatives to the common view of these things. This issue of power, where it comes from, how one acquires it, who has it, what's done with it. I know I don't need to explain why conscious exploration of our personal and collective ideas about power are crucial right now. And if you look around, you will see the storytellers, our writers and artists, and especially our filmmakers, grappling with these questions. Circe is even cast by reviewers in the context of this conversation. Alexandra Alter, in her review of the book in the New York Times, said, quote, that Circe's a bold and subversive retelling of the goddess's story Circe manages to be both epic and intimate in its scope, recasting the most infamous female figure in the Odyssey as a hero in her own right. End quote. So now heroes. You know, the earliest heroes that we have uh, that we can trace because they are part of our literature, Gilgamesh and Achilles and Odysseus, for example, their heroism doesn't have much to do with character as we think of it right now. It's about strength. It's about skill with weapons, bravery. Most importantly, the ability to act without a fear of death. And they were championed by the gods who helped them do this. Odysseus had Athena, and she helps him kill the suitors in a very bloody frenzy near the end of the Odyssey. In Norse mythology, they called this going berserk. The Norse warrior would lose all fear of death and commit unbelievable physical feats endowed by a seemingly superhuman power when he went berserk. And it's interesting, the etymology of berserk goes back to bear and perhaps to the wearing of shirts made of bearskins, which then takes us back to the shamanic tradition of calling on more powerful presences, in this case gods in the various forms of power animals, like bears or eagles, to take one beyond the human limitations of strength and courage. The hero in its archaic form, is supposed to face death without flinching, even court it. And heroes in those old days, then, did many reprehensible things by today's standards. Rape and pillage and cruelty, that was all okay, excusable, because their role was to win and to dominate. And if you think about the conversation that we're having today around what's acceptable behavior in our contemporary heroes who are warriors, soldiers in combat, for example, you can see how uh, unresolved this is 
And yet there has been, over time, a growing emphasis on the heroic as self-sacrifice with an emphasis on morality or character and the extension of this notion of the heroic into a broader field of action. You no longer have to be on the battlefield, per se, to be a hero. This is a theme in Percival, the story that was featured in the last couple of podcasts. In that story, we see that Percival is not a knight. He's not a hero until he understands and lives the code. Early on in the story, he kills the Red Knight and displayed admirable bravery in that, but he did it in order to take the man's armor to acquire the trappings of knighthood. And later on, he fails the test of the Fisher King, a test that required discernment, wisdom, being true to himself, trusting himself, his what he knew, his own intuitions. And these are things that he had not yet gained. And the implicit message then in the story is that he was not yet a true hero. The image of the hero and the impulse towards the heroic is something that we find across all cultures. Now, Today, it often describes the drive to achieve and to be recognized for some form of excellence, for, for doing something extraordinary. That's what I mean when I say we apply this now to a broader field of action. Some people find themselves to be heroes. Life shows it to them. They're presented with a challenge, and they meet it with something that they didn't know they had within them. And some seek it. For the Greeks, the hero was on a quest for glory, to have songs sung about him. That was the motivation. And this quest for glory was important because the only form of immortality a mortal can possess And so in that culture, the only life for men that was truly meaningful was to be recognized and immortalized in song. Honor for them then meant not turning away from the sword, not running from the battle or refusing to avenge, to demand retribution. Uh, None of these things have much to do with honor for us today. But for them, the means and the ends meant very different things. And the quest was to be so extraordinary that the poets would sing about you. You might be wondering why we would keep telling these stories then. Well, as I've suggested, we're still dancing with some of the uh, coarser aspects of of this image of the hero. But I also want to suggest that underneath all of that, there's another level that we may never stop dancing with. At that level, the hero and the listener to stories about the hero is engaged with the mysteries of death, with questions about immortality and the divine, with the quest for perfection, with questions about fate and limits of human will and self-knowledge. 
and also about the mystery of the self and the potential that may lie hidden in an individual. Today, when we talk about the hero and the hero's journey, we are often talking about this question of how you become the person that you were meant to be, how you become most fully yourself. And this is a theme in Miller's story of Circe. Now we can go deeper still, because underneath those questions, we get to the truth of human vulnerability. The Greek exploration of these themes is still so timely and relevant. And once again, Miller touches on this in Circe. One of the things I really appreciate about her story is how she captures and works with the deep, poignant, philosophical questions and feelings of that culture as they still resonate in ours today. I mean, we don't think about our vulnerability a lot, do we? But I suspect that the modern attachment to technology is driven by our now subconscious fear of our vulnerability. And it helps us maintain this fantasy day to day by virtue of our relative comfort and affluence that we have overcome it. And yet, the human body and the human psyche are as frail as they have ever been. And this leads me to consideration of power. Because power is rooted, isn't it, fundamentally in our fear of physical pain and death? Isn't that why might makes right? Might being that ability to rally physical force in your own body, weapons, armies, so that you can protect and control and subdue? And isn't that why we honestly revel in shows of power by those who've traditionally been the underdog or the victim? Because they touch on our own feelings and fears about dangerous possibilities and what we might be able to do if we were ever confronted by them. When someone unexpected displays the ability to fight back or take revenge, when they demonstrate courage and cunning and strength that's often denied to female characters, say, who are usually cast as passive and pretty, or other outsiders, typically portrayed as too weak or too dumb to be effective, we cheer. What might happen if we became more conscious of our own vulnerability? If we looked more directly at our mortality? What if we could see sensitivity as a strength? These are the kinds of questions and challenges that appear in what we call spiritual work that is often seen as separate from the rest of our lives and often seen as a choice. Some people decide to take up, you know, spiritual tasks like empathy and others don't. As we revisit stories of traditional heroes, the good stories, the ones that endure, contain this vulnerability and the fear of suffering and death and the most useful revisions to these inherited stories that can have the most impact on our current dominant images of heroes and power are going to begin with our vulnerability. 
At one point in Miller's story, Circe hears about the song that Homer has sung about Odysseus and his journey and his meeting with her, the Witch of Ai. I was not surprised by the portrait of myself, Circe says, the proud witch undone before the hero's sword, kneeling and begging for mercy. Humbling women seems to be a chief pastime for poets, as if there can be no story unless we crawl and weep. Revealing misogyny, racism, and other false dogmas of exclusion. This is another thing these reworked stories must do. They must include the reasons for exclusion, because overcoming it, surpassing it, is one of the challenges facing anyone, any of us, who aspires to change his or her or their relationship to power and the heroic. We can't pretend that it's not there as we seek to escape it. Back in March of this year, I did another podcast on this notion of mythopoiesis, and that revolved around a novel by Naomi Alderman called The Power. In The Power, Alderman explores power and the threat of physical violence, misogyny, heroes, and the search for new narratives to support a different value system. I loved that book and recommended it to you too. There are plenty of opportunities for cheering at the success of the underdog, in this case women, but that book, like this one, is worthy of a podcast in my mind because Alderman didn't offer simple conclusions. Her deconstruction of misogyny and power doesn't fall back on the convenient vision, convenient for some of us anyway, that a world run by women would necessarily be a kind and gentle and just place. At least not after millennia of patriarchy, a social organization that has wounded all of us. As we break down barriers and admit their falseness, as we tell stories and create opportunities for each person to achieve his or her or their particular excellence, we have to ask, to what end? What is the point? What does the hero serve? In Joseph Campbell's model of the hero's journey, the real purpose of the hero's struggle and achievements is the rejuvenation of culture. Somehow, what the hero has conquered is conquered in his community as well. Or the story of his actions in combination with his living example brings a new possibility into the world. Earlier this year, there was another superhero movie out called The Black Panther. If you haven't seen that movie, I urge you to, because in addition to giving the hero a different face, a black face in this case, Black Panther did some reworking of the motivations of the hero, and so the image of the heroic. Now, at the beginning of this podcast, when I was laying out my inquiry, I said our ideas about the heroic and the hero and power and possible alternatives to the common views of these things. What are the alternatives to the heroic? This image of greatness, the hero, has inspired so many people for so long. 
but it carries with it conquest and subjugation and domination and death. Our most common view is that the hero is a winner, which means that there are losers. And because we don't have well-articulated alternatives to that, we are living in a very one-sided culture, deeply enmeshed in the shadow of the hero. In a culture where everyone is encouraged and expected to be a hero, where a lot of our most encouraging and inspiring rhetoric is be the hero in your own life, we know that there are a multitude of other roles and contributions that people can make, and yet these have no value in the public sphere. And so many of us feel unworthy. We feel like our lives don't count. We feel that we are cut off from a larger sense of purpose. All of us suffer loss. All of us are wounded. All of us are in the process of becoming and being. And we can use these stories, if we mine them, for new ideas about what there is to offer and other forms of power. Other forms of power that give strength to a life. So I want to return to Circe here before I wrap it up. One of the other things that I love about Miller's book is that she has a deep familiarity with the character that she creates, which is revealed in all kinds of small details. And I want to give thanks to Annalisa Quinn in her review of the book, which was shared on NPR, for drawing my attention to the way that Miller reframes Circe's braids. Now, Circe is described by Homer as the goddess or the nymph with lovely braids. And as Quinn explains in her review, this is usually explained as a signal that she's not only beautiful, but she's also exotic because Eastern goddesses wore their hair in braids. So the image is one of seduction. But in Miller's book, the braids are mentioned when Circe first begins to wake up to her capacity for magic and starts roaming her island to find ingredients for her spells. I learned to braid my hair back, she says, so it would not catch on every twig, and how to tie my skirts at the knees to keep the burrs off. As Quinn points out, this is a small but important detail because it shifts the meaning of Circe's hairdo from a detail defined by men to create who have created female characters that they want and need to serve their stories into an action taken by a woman in pursuit of what she wants, her power, her work in the world. At one point, when she's talking about magic, Circe says, No wonder I have been so slow. All this while I have been a weaver without wool, a ship without the sea. She had no point and no power until she discovered her work in the world and gave herself permission to cultivate it. 
all of us, regardless of gender, are forced into patterns and roles and expectations. We are all tyrannized by the dominant image of the hero. And through that tyranny, assigned value, or not, by others. Your choices in life may be broad or narrow, but it's up to each of us to find our own gifts and also recognize that our freedom to exercise them must be universal. We must all have the right to be who we are and to find for ourselves that source of power, the power that fuels our love and capacities in the life that we have. As mortal beings, we are all vulnerable and time is short. That's it for me, Catherine Savela, and Myth in the Mojave for this week. Feel free to contact me if you have questions or comments about today's program. And if you're finding value here, I hope you'll consider joining the Myth in the Mojave community on Bandcamp. For only $5 a month, you have unlimited access to all of the Myth in the Mojave programs archived there, as well as free downloads of everything new that I create. You also play an essential role in making future programs possible. Thank you so much for listening. Please tune in next time. And until then, happy myth-making and keep the mystery in your life alive.